0: is Nehemiah 1, 1 1-11. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakali. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of, the God of heaven. Then I said, O oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants." The people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are, the far, are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attended to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cut bare to the king. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So imagine this. You live in a nation that's known as the greatest nation in the world. You say, that's not hard to imagine. I live in the United States. No, this was a long time ago. The nation you lived in was indisputably at one time the greatest nation in the known world. People from all over the place came to look at it and to marvel at it. You had incredible buildings, a beautiful city, a magnificent temple, second to none. And then, over a period of time, your nation began to decline. To the north, people began to invade and put pressure on the entire kingdom. Before long, the northern section of your kingdom, let's say for our purposes, the states of New England, were taken over by a foreign power. And the people there were carted away into captivity. You continued to try to be a nation and things continued to get worse. And before it was all over, they advanced to the south, this conquering nation. But now it was a new nation. First it was the Assyrians and now it's the Babylonians. And they take over your capital city, let's say Washington, D.C. They destroy that capital city. And in the case of this story, they destroy something even more important than what we call the building of Congress. They destroyed the temple. 400 years old it was, the temple. A wonder of the ancient world. Solomon built it, destroyed. This temple was the center of everything they did, and these people were carted off into captivity. They were marched for a thousand miles or so over deserts, probably in chains, and alongside them, get this was their king. His eyes had been gouged out. He was blind, in shackles. His sons were dead. And off you go into captivity. You'd heard stories about this, actually, now that you recall. You remember there was a time where Moses said in the prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah, that if you didn't follow God, everything would go wrong. And you would be captives in a foreign land. You also heard stories about restoration through those prophets. That somehow, if you follow God, God would be gracious and bring you back. But all those stories are all meshed together right now on this long walk. And you go to Babylon and you stay there. You stay there for a long time. And in the midst of staying there, you do what you always do. You plant vineyards, you work, and the people come along and you... You know about stories, well, we've heard about some of them recently about Esther and Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those were stories from the exile of people who faithfully followed God and God blessed them. But now uh, there's a new story. Zerubbabel and Ezra, two names to be exact, have been a part of restoring that place that was burned to the ground. The, The temple was being reconstructed and was reconstructed and now... You're still in captivity and you hear about a man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah, he never saw the old temple. He was born, so far as you can tell, actually in captivity. And now he hears a story about the temple that was rebuilt and how the exiles are doing, um, that had returned and the people who were there. And it doesn't sound good. And he's overwhelmed. This Nehemiah, who is he? He's not a prophet. He's not a priest. He's not a king. He's the cupbearer to a king. Oh, it's a vocation that's honorable, as a matter of fact, um, very exalted. But he's none of the former designations, prophet, priest, or king. But he calls you to go back to this place and he wants you to restore the city walls with him. By the way, when Nehemiah, this man who was born into captivity, heard the story of the calamity in Jerusalem and how things were going badly for the exiles, he mourned and grieved. And and then he called the people of God to join him in the restoration of the walls. How would he do it? What, What would be the approach, the design by which Nehemiah would proceed ahead? Well, the first thing Nehemiah does, you'll notice from the prayer, because it outlines really the program, so to speak. From the prayer, he recognizes the desperate need. He doesn't paint it with bright colors. He says, things are awful. I heard this from my brother. We're in desperate need. And the desperation that Nehemiah faced drove him to prayer and to fasting. You know, routinely when you think about fasting, don't you think about desperate times? Often people fast because they're especially serious about what's going on in their life or the life of their community or the life of their nation. And and Nehemiah was no different. He recognized the need. That was the preparation for the mission that he felt called to, to recognize the need. And to name it for what it was, it was desperate. The second thing Nehemiah did and vicariously called the people to do is he declared his dependence. Not his independence. He declared his dependence upon God. He acknowledged that there was no way for these walls to be reconstructed, for the nation of Israel to be restored again, unless God, the sovereign God of the universe, who has overarching plans for his people, in spite of calamity, is to come and intervene and be with them. So he declared his dependence upon God. You know what else he did? He, along with his people, but especially he as the leader to begin with, He acknowledged the sin. He acknowledged his sin and the sin of the people. He said, in effect, God, we're in this situation. And I know in part we're in this situation, in large part, because of our own sin. And I acknowledge that. I understand it. And I want to confess that before you on behalf of myself and on behalf of the people. And what else did he do in his preparation for, for this mission that he felt called by God to? He actually remembered. (laughs) He remembered God's redemption in the past. Did you notice that in the prayer? God, you're a redeeming God. God, we're a sinful people. God, we have a desperate need, but we know that you redeem your people. As a matter of fact, you promise to redeem your people if they call out to you and confess their sins and return. God, remember (laughs) like God needs to remember. Of course, he doesn't. It's really a call to faithfulness. It's a call out, like we do frequently in corporate pronouncements of our faith. We know God is faithful, and we call God to our help to redeem us because he's a faithful God, because he's a redeeming God. And Nehemiah says, you're a redeeming God. Please, oh God, hear our prayer and redeem us once again. That's another way he prepares for his mission. But you know how else he prepares for his mission? He waits. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. He was not only in the presence of the king every day, he was in the presence of the king all day, every day. Every time the king ate or drank, or it's likely even when he slept, Nehemiah was outside his door. Realize how many opportunities Nehemiah had to declare his vision to the king? I think if, like Nehemiah, I was anxious to see the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt and I saw the desperate need and I prayed fervently in prayer and fasted, I think I'd be inclined to act rather quickly. I'd say to myself, I know the king. I got an inside corner on this one. I'll ask him tomorrow. You know, according to the text, when we look at the dates of the Jewish calendar, how long it was before Nehemiah finally approached the king? Four months. Four months before the king every day. And you know how he approached the king? He didn't approach the king and say, King, I got something to tell you. He approached the king as he always had, day after day after day, and finally the king looked at him one day and said, Nehemiah, your countenance has fallen. You're ashen. You look horrible. What's the matter? And Nehemiah said, Oh, king, since you ask. And he told him. That's the story in short. There's a lot more details to the story, but in short, that's the story. I want to make a quick application to that story for us. Especially quick since we're so far behind this morning. Here it is. You know, you're not called, I don't suppose, to rebuild the wall of a city. Your mission, you might not consider to be so grand. Matter of fact, you might not even consider the mission of your church to be that grand. It's kind of ordinary, your mission. But don't you know you're called? A called one? Don't you know you're called like Nehemiah and all the people of God? To share the love of God with everybody you know? To build up the kingdom of God to do your part? I love that song that Christy sang at the Offertory. What is the part God wrote for you? I don't know the answer to that question. Maybe you don't either. But there's probably a part that God has written for you. And I want to encourage you that no matter where you are, what you're doing, or what group you're a part of, Friends that small group this church god is always at work accomplishing his purposes in the world it doesn't matter how terrible the situation seems just like the people in exile experienced an awful situation it makes no difference how calamitous the situation is god is at work So if we as individuals and as a church are called by God for a mission in the world, which I believe we are, how do we prepare for that mission? Well, it seems quite likely that this pattern might be good to recognize the need. What I mean by that is to be absolutely honest. I think, honestly, we've got too much Pollyanna in our blood sometimes we ignore the facts and the reality and the dark circumstances that may be right in front of us personally or corporately. And we say, it's not really that bad. Let's just have an optimistic attitude about life and everything will be fine. Let's just push right on through it. It'll get better and better. And you know what that is? It's just ignoring reality. Ignoring reality altogether when circumstances are not good. I don't think it's helpful to do that. Uh, years ago, I read a book um, by a, a business author. His name is Jim Collins. You've probably heard of his name, and he wrote this really popular book, Good to Great. One of the things in this book by Jim Collins is a description he gives of a man called Admiral Stockdale. Remember his name? Some of you do. Admiral Stockdale actually was an admiral during the Vietnam conflict. He was taken into captivity into a basically prisoner of war camp in which he was officially tortured more than 20 times in an eight-year period. Uh, Admiral Stockdale was a remarkable man. He did his best to assess the situation and bring life to it as much as he could and he tried to keep the men who were under him in terms of rank and well-ordered positions and created a sort of a Morse code that they used to communicate to one another when they weren't supposed to talk. He even wrote letters to his wife that were sent back to the States and encoded in those letters were intelligence information for his superiors and for whoever was watching out in uh, this case over the conflict and he knew to do so could cost him his life and certainly more torture and it did on one occasion while in this prisoner of war camp uh, all the prisoners were banned from speaking at all for a extended period of time and they could say no words to one another and on the third anniversary of him being shot down and being put in the prisoner of war camp his fellow soldiers were outside his cell Mopping the floor, using the Morse code that he had especially invented for them, and spelling out with the mop, we love you. Difficult circumstances, more than any of us have ever experienced. Jim Collins was interviewing Admiral Stockdale at the campus where both of them were teaching in California, Stanford to be exact, and... As he walked across campus and interviewed uh, the admiral, he said, um, what was it that kept you going? And the admiral told him in his words, he says, I never lost faith in the end of the story. He said, I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect, I would not trade. Colin said they continued to walk across campus. And then he asked the admiral, he said, "Um, who didn't make it out and why? And the admiral turned to him, he said, oh, that's easy. He said, it was the optimists who never made it out. And Colin said, I was just really troubled by what he had just said earlier. And then he said it was the Optimus who never made it out. I couldn't put the two together. He said, yeah, it was the Optimus who couldn't never made it out. It it was those ones who said we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas came and went and it was over. The ones that said we'll be out by Easter. And Easter came and went and it was over. By Thanksgiving, they keep moving the date and promising they'd be out by then. He said, they're the ones that never got home. And then... He said to Collins, There's something very important, a lesson that you must understand. This is the very important lesson, he said. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you cannot afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your own current reality. Collins and his team dubbed that the Stockdale paradox. Nehemiah was not for a moment going to diminish the brutal facts that were in front of him. And when we face challenges in our life, to following Christ in this present world. Challenges that are sometimes deeply embedded within us, like our own sin. It does us no good to be Pollyanna about the reality that's around us and within us. It does us a whole lot of good to confront the brutal facts of our own reality with the faith that we will overcome, that the sovereign God is with us. And that we will be redeemed. I wonder where you are in your life. I wonder how you feel about your circumstances. Even maybe this church. Confronting the brutal reality of our own circumstances. With a deeply embedded faith in God's sovereignty. That's the first approach to any mission. Where God will accomplish his will through us. I think second, we need to remind ourselves individually and collectively that to proceed in the mission that God has called us to, we must declare our dependence. Play on words for sure. We declare as a nation our independence, our declaration of independence. Fine so far as body politic is concerned, but when it comes to faith, And following God, we need a declaration of dependence. It doesn't mean we're not responsible for what God called us to. It doesn't mean that we don't have a part, an important part to play, but it does mean that everything we do, including our prayer and our fasting and everything God calls to do, calls us to do, and the consequences and the results of that energy rest squarely in God's court because we're utterly dependent upon Him to accomplish His purposes through our feeble efforts. So we face the reality that is ours, and we declare ourselves as absolutely dependent upon God. Of course, I think we also remember God's redemption. Reminding ourselves and God through prayer, don't you love getting together? I do. I I just love getting together (laughs) as the body of Christ. And hearing psalms read and listening to songs sung and scripture read that reminds us of God's faithfulness. I need it so much to stay on my mission. I must remember that God is a redeeming God. And he redeems those lost people like me. You know, finally, what we need to do in our individual missions and collective missions as the people of God we need, like Nehemiah, to wait for the opportunity. Sometimes I'm impulsive. God's opportunity for my mission, whatever it is, or our mission of the church, God's timing is not always our timing. That's, that's a worn-out phrase, but it's true, isn't it? Routinely, we find that God's timing is different than ours. But it means that we still need to be prayerful. We need to be watchful, available. And then on occasion, we'll just be surprised, really kind of shocked. I leave you with a story, not a story about Nehemiah, but a story about someone right here today. I heard her story this week. It came first to me through my wife and then later talked to her myself. And here's her story. She was working in a particular location that was terribly intimidating. And honestly, every time she was at work, she was fearful. It was dominantly male, if not exclusively, except for her, and oppressive. And she was fearful. And as she entered that workplace, every day, she prayed, God, please protect me. Keep me safe, basically, and make me faithful. Day after day, she went about the job, doing what she was called to do, living as a believer in that situation day after day. And near the end of her time there, in that position, she walked up to a door. Knowing to a certain extent what she was about to face behind the door and placed her hand on the doorknob. And said, as she had so many times, God, please protect me. Make me faithful. She said, it was as though the Lord was standing right by me. And said, you're going to be okay. She opened the door, went in to do her job. And when she opened the door and went in, shortly thereafter she encountered a man who really was a rather angry person. Everybody knew it. And she was afraid of him. And he walked up to her and he said to her, Can I talk to you? And she said, sure. So they sat down, and he began to pour out his soul about his life and where he was. He was overwhelmed with despair, and as he talked to her, she said, it dawned on me. I had an opportunity in front of me, and I felt compelled by the Spirit of God to ask him this. And so I did. I looked at him and I said, do you know the Lord? And he broke down and said, no. And she said, would you like to know the Lord? She said, this man crumbled onto his knees, overwhelmed with emotion. And she led him in a prayer To introduce him to Jesus. As she told me the story. I heard it again just this morning. She said. You got to understand. I'm not an evangelist. I don't do that stuff. That's not me. If I told you her name. You'd know. You know why it's not her. She's quiet, unassuming, shy, and faithful. Faithful. You see, she didn't even know what her mission was. Except that she prayed to a God that she trusted in, believed his protection, confessed her sins, and followed him, and did her best to be faithful And watched for an opportunity. So where are you? Maybe your name's not Nehemiah. You'll never build a wall. Or restore a city. But God's given you a mission. And you can follow. And then wait. And be ready. And God will do amazing things. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that uh, you're the sovereign Lord of the universe, that our times are in your hands. We thank you that you love us enough not only to redeem us, but to call us and to give us a mission in life. Our mission is to follow you and to share the good news that we've inherited from you. It's a simple mission at one level, complicated at another, terrifying to be sure at all kinds of places and times. And there's all kinds of things written within that mission, Lord. Details that are unexpected to us right now. Situations we couldn't anticipate and opportunities that will arise. And we pray that you will give us the grace to be faithful. Give us the grace to acknowledge our utter dependence on you. To recognize the need to confess our sins, to remind you and ourselves of your redeeming nature, and then to wait for the opportunities that present themselves to us to be your hands and feet. And we'll thank you for that. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.
0: Would you please stand?